Christ the Lord is risen today. Angels roll the stone away from the two wherein he lay. Little children come and sing glory, glory to the King. Christ the Lord of everything. a poem read by three of our Kingwood kids, and it reminds us of the meaning of the Resurrection Day, and after that, we will have a poem by one of our teenagers. Jesus loves us all so much that he would bleed and die. He took upon his bitten back the Christ that saw him him crucified. Yes, he loves us all so much that he would that he was scorned and softened. He took it all upon himself for it was the will of God. God knew it was the only way, the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, a silenced man, would need to give his life. And even in the gift he gave, we still have not yet known the fullest, the fullness of his might, mighty love and the grace so freely, no, freely shown. All he asks is that we all repent and follow him, for he has made a way for us, free from hurt and sin. Yes, God loves us all so much, and yes, he loves us still. He longs for us to trust in him and do the Father's will. Uh, writing down our history isn't always how it would work, uh, always how it used to work anyway. Uh, in fact, 
a lot of history, uh, especially back in uh, Jesus' time, was, um, was, was oral history. It was talking. They would tell each other things uh, before they wrote them down. And um, that being said, I want to share a story um, that you, you can find in Luke 24. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's, it's verses 13 to uh, oh, 35. Uh, if you feel like it. I'm not going to be reading straight from it, though, because I want to I tell this story uh, in a way that I imagine, maybe, if it was relayed today by somebody who was there, um, the way that it might be told as a story. So um, I'm going to kind of take on uh, the role of a person who is, uh, who is present for the things I'm about to uh, tell you about. So uh, I'm not Peter anymore. <clears throat> In fact, my name is Cleopas. Uh, weird name, I understand. Um, but I've had a weird week. I don't know what you guys have heard, how long you've been around the area, but um, about a week ago, uh, this, this, this teacher, this, this, this rabbi, religious teacher, uh, showed up in town, in Jerusalem, and it was this, it was this whole thing. Him even coming in the gates was this whole thing. There were people, they were waving uh, palm branches, they were throwing their coats down so that the donkey he was on, yeah, donkey, by the way, that he was riding on could ride over some, some coats instead of the dirt. Uh, they were yelling things. And that's what's important here. The things they were yelling, things like, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, they were calling this guy the Messiah. Now, I don't know how much you know uh, how, how devout uh, Jews you are or are not, I don't know, but, but the Messiah, in case you're not aware, was somebody that was promised by God through the prophets ages ago who would come and redeem Israel, who would come in and save us. We didn't know exactly what that meant necessarily, but we knew he would save us, we knew it was promised, and that one day he would come. And now here we have this rabbi, this, this guy, Yeshua, Jesus, whatever you want to call him, coming into town having people call him this Messiah. Okay, okay, yeah, that um, wasn't on board with it, not right away, necessarily, um, but I was a bit more accepting of it than the Pharisees. I mean, you, you guys know how Pharisees are, real sticklers for the law, and they get a little frisky when you threaten their power. I don't know if you've noticed this, when you threaten their, when you question even their authority, it's, they get a little negative, and, and this guy... This guy went on for the next week to just outright question these guys' authority left and right. I mean, being called the Messiah in the first place is a kind of a blow to their authority because you would think they would know. They're the religious guys. Anyway, they weren't big fans. We're not big fans of him at all. And, I mean, you prob I probably don't need to tell you the rest of it in detail, but long story short, they had him arrested. They had him uh, beaten. And uh, they executed him on, on a cross, no less. They, they let Romans put this guy on a cross for what? It was never, it was never clear to me um, that he was claiming to be the Messiah, I, I, I guess. He, was, he had some radical ideas, you know. He was taking the, I, I, I heard him speak a few times, just, just so you know. I, I was there. I've actually come to think of myself as, as one of his followers because the things he was saying, I mean, it aligned with the, with the God that I knew from my teachings, but he took the law and kind of flipped it on its ear. You know, you've heard it said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I say to you, 
Love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. Some crazy stuff he was talking, but it, but it, it was right. It, it, just, it, it felt right. Anyway, I don't know if that's a crime worthy of death. I personally don't think so. Personally, I think it was a bit of an overreaction. Um, kind of a tragedy, really. Anyway, a couple days after that, um, some women who were also followers of his, pretty early in the morning, they, they, they came to us and they told us. <laughs> they, they told us they went to his tomb with spices to, you know, prepare his body and, and embalm it and whatnot. And they come to us, they told us that when they got there, not only was his body not there anymore, okay, <laughs> but there were angels there that told them he's alive. I don't really just believe anything anyone tells me, especially if it has to do with something this, you know, frankly, ridiculous. You know, because people just, dead people just get up and walk out of their tombs all the time. Just move big old heavy stones and just walk away. Because that just happens, you know, in the real world, please. Plus, I was just, when I heard it, I, I, was, I was too distraught to really process what they were saying anyway. But a couple of the other guys, they went over to the tomb to see what these women were talking about, and they said they found it just like it was described, minus the angels, but also minus body. So we know his body's gone. I don't know. I just don't know what to make of most of it. At the time, anyway. Because uh, <laughs> later that day, this is the part of the story that, that I, I might lose you here. Um, you might think this is a little out, outlandish, but, but, but bear with me, okay? We're walking. Me and another friend of mine, we're walking, leaving Jerusalem, heading back to Emmaus, uh, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, you can't miss it. Anyway, we're heading to Emmaus, and uh, another guy joins us, another traveler. Uh, happens to be going down the same road to Emmaus or farther. We didn't know. Just another traveler. Nobody we recognized. And he joins us, and I guess he had heard us talking. We were talking about what I was just, you know, telling you about, and he, he had heard some of it, and he said, well, what, what is this? What are, you, what, are you, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and I turned to him, I'm like, um, are you new here, or... Because this has been the entire last week, man. Like, I don't know, you might be the only guy in Jerusalem right now who doesn't know what's going on here. You seriously haven't heard any of these things. And he says, well, what things? I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay, all right. And so I explained to him all that stuff I just told you, about the teacher, Yeshua, Jesus, all the things that happened to him. And I conveyed my doubts uh, to him as well. And the first thing he says back to me, you know he says? He, he calls me and my friend foolish. He says, oh, <laughs> foolish. Excuse me? Okay, stranger, like that I just met maybe five minutes ago. So, calm down, buddy, all right? Oh, you're fo foolish, man. Okay, how am I foolish? Well, your hearts are too slow to believe the things the prophets wrote. I'm sorry, what? Well, he goes, and he starts at Moses, you know, way back in the beginning. Starts at Moses, and he talks us through, from Moses all the way through the prophets, and explains one, one item at a time why all the things that happened to this guy, this, this teacher, this rabbi, Jesus, had to happen. And in fact, were prophesied to happen to the Messiah. And it made sense. While he was talking, I... It's not something I can really explain, but while he was talking, it just, I... I knew he was telling me the truth. 
Anyway, by the time he was done, we were pretty close to Emmaus, which is where we were going in the first place. It was getting dark, and it looked like he was going to keep walking. It looked like he wasn't stopping off at the same, uh, same exit we were, and it was dark. And so, you know, we invited him. We're like, hey, man, we're having a good conversation. It's late. Come stay at our place. Have dinner. You can keep walking in the morning. He agrees. And um, we, go, we go home. And we sit down. We recline at the table, as one does. And um, he takes up the bread, and he blesses it. And he breaks it, and he starts to hand it to us. And in, in, in that moment, I realized something. I realized what that feeling was earlier when he was talking. I realized why he knew so much about the prophets and about the Messiah and about Jesus. I, I can't tell you why I didn't see it earlier, but as he sat there, he handed me a piece of bread. I realized that was him. <laughs> I saw him die. I watched him die. I watched him executed in the most painful way that you can imagine. You know the word excruciating? That comes from the words excrucia. means from the cross. We have an entire word to describe how painful and terrible that is. He died. I watched him die. And he was there, handing me a piece of bread. Breathing. Living. And then as soon as I realized it, Dude was gone. And I don't mean he stood up and, and walked out the door without saying a word. I mean, he was just gone. I, I can't explain it. I know I wasn't seeing things, because I turned to my friend. And I asked him, did you, did you, did he just, yeah, yeah. So, so earlier when he was talking, did you feel like, like a burning, like a burning in your heart? Yeah, yeah, I did. So we get up, right? We stand back up. We're in the middle of dinner. But this is important. We get up, and we, middle of the night, <laughs> go seven miles back down the road the way we came, back to Jerusalem, because we needed to round up the 11 remaining disciples of his. They were the closest to him, and we needed to, we needed to tell someone. Because something like that can't just happen, and then you don't tell anybody. We had to tell somebody. We told them first. Now I'm telling you. He died. But he, he is alive. Tell your friends. In case you aren't familiar with Luke chapter 24, we started the service with the first 12 verses, or portions of the first 12 verses, which is the resurrection morning. Peter just told you the story of the road to Emmaus, where, um, wasn't Peter, but who was the guy? Cleopas. Cleopas. Okay, Cleopas, uh, I'm confused because Peter was also a disciple, right? So, uh, um, where they had the experience of Jesus revealing himself to them, and we're going to take some time to look at the last portion of Matthew 24, Luke 24, 
the very end of the gospel account from Luke. If you want to stay in, in with your parents, you may do that, but otherwise, come out here, boys and girls. we got a nice group today. You're going to have a good time together. Okay, join me in prayer. Father, I pray that you'll bless these boys and girls in their time together, and not just this morning, but tomorrow and the next day and all the days. Watch over them and protect them and be in their homes and at school and with them as they play and do their work and all these other things. Right now, we pray that you will teach them and bless their teachers too. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to uh, say again, thank you for those who brought flowers for the cross. Uh, you may know, but I want to remind you because it's an important part of the story. The cross was really not a beautiful thing in that day. It was an instrument for execution only. And so it was not a pleasant thing, but it's become pleasant. And we do the flowering to illustrate the fact that in the resurrection, what started as an instrument of death has been turned into something beautiful. And it not only looks beautiful, it smells beautiful too. And uh, that reminds us of spring and new life. And that's really what the meaning of the cross. And it's the implication of what it was all about. That Jesus went into death. Pain and suffering that went with the death. But then with the resurrection there is new life. So we celebrate. And we celebrate Easter. That's why we call it celebrating. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. These are celebrations because of the meaning behind it. We don't celebrate the instrument and the symbols of death, but we celebrate the release from death and sin and despair that came from those very real acts of Jesus in history. I want to pick up the story from after the road to Emmaus. Uh, you can, uh, um, you have an insert in your bulletin which will draw your attention to uh, the passages that we will focus on. Uh, verse 36, and while they were still talking about this, this is the story that, uh, the point at which, uh, to which Peter led us in his story about the road to Emmaus, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They came and reported what they had seen to the rest of the disciples. And they were puzzled as well as the original ones were that had the experience. In verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now you may know that the book of Acts is the continuous, uh, continuation of this. Luke is the author of that as well. And that begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in what is called Pentecost. And that's what he's referring to. I am going to leave you, but I'm going to give you something that the Father has promised in the place of me, my personal physical presence, and you will have power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the book of Acts picks up that story. You might say truth is stranger than fiction. These make interesting stories. Parts of the Bible are teaching portions. Some are poems, uh, songs, and uh, some are historical narratives. Some are teaching and uh, many of them, like this, are in-depth storytelling because this is a real event, God breaking into time and space. Stories are powerful connections to us. We are occasionally are reminded of the fact that truth can be stranger than fiction and more interesting as well. The story of the resurrection, there's a movie out dealing with that subject right now that is... It's very well done, and I uh, just uh, happened to catch parts of an old movie on television last uh, night called Moses. Uh, the um, NRA guy was, uh, is Moses, um, Charlton Heston, Moses. And the reason that those movies are so successful is that they deal with real-life issues, and they tell stories that really are not made up. They're not fictionalized stories. Fictionalized stories can be very entertaining, very interesting, but really the most interesting stories that we keep going back to are stories that really happened. Yesterday, Marjorie and I uh, went to a play at a local community theater here, The Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, I know that some of you saw that. But the amazing thing about that story is it's not fictionalized. It was a very, very accurate presentation of the book itself, which really just was her diary. A young girl in, uh, in Amsterdam during the Nazi occupation of World War II. Very powerful story, but it's so powerful because you know it's true. And you can empathize with the people in it partly because they're not figments of someone's imagination. They're just telling the story that actually happened to them. And that's what this story is all about. So let's start with the first uh, point here. Number one, you have an outline. There's five points I want to draw out from this passage, this particular story here. Uh, fear is appropriate and exactly the reason for the Jesus story. Flesh and blood communication is God's grace at work. In verse uh, 36, I'm just going to read these again. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Fear is appropriate when things from the supernatural world engage our world. And I don't think that we're meant to 
be comfortable in transferring back and forth as some people attempt to do. I think it's dangerous and I think it's disrespectful and it causes death and destruction when people attempt to engage levels of life that they were not created to live in. This is important because it starts way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. God drove them out of the garden and then put an angel with a flaming sword. The symbolism of that is powerful. We can't go back to utopia. We can't go back to the status of human beings in the original pristine state. But we can know God and we can live within the boundaries that God has created humans to live. And he will initiate a communication from outside of the world that we are designed to live in. We are creatures, that means we are created by God to live in a certain realm. This is our realm. We live here. We're physical and we are spiritual in that we have souls and spirits within us, but we are not invited anywhere in the Bible to trip back and forth between the spirit world and the physical world, but we are given a door in which we can engage life that is eternal and life that is beyond the world we can by nature live in. And they were afraid because they were supposed to be afraid. This was Jesus appearing who should have been a ghost but wasn't a ghost, something that had never happened to them and has never happened in history at all, a true resurrection, a true permanent resurrection of body and spirit and soul come back to them, engaging them in conversation. And he demonstrated to them that his hands and his side were the same ones that they had seen pierced. So they knew it was him. The physical is important because God chose to communicate to us in a realm he created us to live in. That's why Jesus, the incarnation story, is about God taking on human form to communicate on our level. And number two, evidence only works for those who are interested in it. It's been there all along. Verse 40 says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you, do you, uh, do you have anything to eat? And, they took, and he said to them, this is what I told you in verse 44 while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. These, this information was there the whole time. You remember the story of the wise men, the magi, who came looking for the Messiah, for Jesus, the King of Israel, sometime after he was born. And these were the wise and the, and the powerful people from the east, Persia. And uh, they came looking, and they had actually discovered, through their reading of Scripture and through the star that God had given to guide them, that there was going to be a king, the Messiah, the coming one, and they knew this because they had actually looked with open minds. And yet the religious leaders of Israel themselves itself didn't know because they didn't want to know. They knew all of the facts. In fact, they were probably concerned that this might happen. This might really be the Messiah, but he was coming in a way they didn't want. The facts really are rarely the problem. I remember a, a, a paragraph from... Um, 
N.T. Wright, I think it was, who was telling about how he was speaking to a college audience one time and, and a, uh, a young man approached him with a bunch of uh, questions. The standard questions of doubt uh, tend to be, I'm, I mean, they tend to be kind of standard if, uh, uh, if you've engaged much in uh, the doubting world or the skeptic, skeptic world. Uh, there's really only about six or eight questions that are brought to the surface on just about every conversation. And they're not all that complicated to, to answer, but uh, Dr. Wright, asked the young man, he said, before I go into answering this question, I think it was actually a question and answer session after a speech he gave, uh, before I go into answering this question, I got a question for you. If I answered all of your questions satisfactorily, your logic questions, your reasoning questions, to your satisfaction, would you then want to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and believe in God? And the young man thought about it and he said, no, I just don't like the idea. That is sometimes the problem. It's not so much the lack of logic. There's no question that this Bible, this book, presents this as a miraculous intervention of God from the outside. It's not any claim. There's no claim in this book that God is somehow tinkering with the natural order of things and that he's reversing things. God had showed himself in Jesus and the resurrection was one of those things. It's clearly presented as a miracle, a, a display of God's power. There's no argument to be made about resurrections can't happen or, uh, or yeah, this is, this is just scientifically impossible or logically impossible and it doesn't match reason. Of course it doesn't. That's the whole point. This is God intervening, saying I'm here to release you from the bonds that you live with. Bonds I created, but I want you to know there's a future, there's more. And so through Jesus' resurrection, the hope of eternal life is given in a way that they could understand and see it. The evidence was there, and Jesus pointed this out to the disciples. This was always in there. Story of the two guys on the road, or the guys on the road to Emmaus. It's the same thing. It just repeats itself. He showed them through the scripture. Oh, yeah, it was there all the time. But there's something more. In verse 3, or the third point I want to make, spiritual truths require spiritual eyes. The real power is not in reason, religion, or force, but in God's spirit. It was Jesus who introduced the expression born again. Contrary to what some seem to think, this is not evangelical's invention. It was Jesus' invention. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he does what anybody would do. He said, how can that be? I'm already uh, an, uh, an old guy. Or not an old guy, but I'm already a man. It can't be done. And Jesus said, ha, but spiritually you must be born again. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that the spiritual things, the spiritual insights can only come from the Holy Spirit. There's facts and then there's experience of those facts. It is possible to sit in church all of your life. It's possible to say, I believe these things. I sign my name on a form or I find my name on a 
for spiritual law or I sign my name or something. And I believe all of these facts, but to have no genuine insight and experience, just facts. So there's different levels. Those who reject, those who accept, but don't have the follow-through spiritual experience. That's the next step. This is what uh, Jesus told the disciples at verse 45. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in its name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Kids read a poem that made reference to the Father, to Jesus, and to the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus told the disciples when they took to go into all the world and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that opens the inner eyes. Now, you know that it's possible to uh, describe to people things that they're never going to truly get until it happens to them. I would suggest that love is one of those things. Uh, there was an article recently in, um, boy, I forget what journal it was, some research out of England uh, where the rational part of the brain has to shut down for people to believe in God. The rational part of the brain has to shut down for people to fall in love, to be angry, to be jealous, to be kind. 98% of all that we value in life is a step beyond what is merely rational. So, of course, it doesn't shut down. You just say it goes beyond because there's so much that is not understood. And that's why the things we value most step beyond that which can be done by mathematical formula or computers even artificial intelligence. There is a need to let God, who is the one we want to relate to, bridge the gap with us. You know, you can fall in love with a person who does not love you. And that sometimes leads to obsession and stalking and all kind of things. But is that really love? If that person doesn't love you and you claim you love that person, it's obsession. It's something else, something twisted. So there's two parties here. It isn't until there's an interaction between us and God that it steps beyond religion. All over the world on today, whether it's today yet or tomorrow already in some places, People are celebrating this occasion. To some people, it's a religious event that happens once a year. To some people, it's a celebration of something that's real, personal, and deep. There are different traditions all over. The flowering of cross is not a northwest or west coast tradition. It comes from the south, and uh, that's where we learned it. We brought it here, but... Uh, when we came here. But it's a beautiful tradition. But nevertheless, 
There are traditions all over the world that celebrate a religious event. Some of them not even very nice traditions. Some of the beatings that go on in the Philippines and other places this time of year that are related to this. That's not Jesus. There's got to be a true interaction, a step beyond, because God is more than just religion, what the church has said. God is real and personal and wishes to connect on that level. And number four, mission to the world is not an optional add-on. It's inherent to the gospel. Jesus says, you are witnesses to these things, and, you're going to, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is all part of the story. From the very beginning, Philippians chapter 2 tells it in this way, that Jesus being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God. He was, but took on the form of a servant, a human. Makes a very insulting statement there. How degrading it is for Jesus to take on the form of a human. A human? Well, yeah, if you're God, it is. Took on that form so that he could go through all of the suffering, the pain, and the despair, and the separation from the Father. That is what the cross and the grave are about. But then the resurrection, and it goes on to say in Philippians 2 that God gave him the name above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a worldwide message because it's God. The one who is outside of creation itself. The God of the universe has decided to stoop, to speak, and to communicate with us in that personal way. Not just to tell a story, but to embody that story with significance that he himself has chosen to relate to us in love and solve a problem that we could not solve on our own. Number five. The hands and feet part of Jesus' mission is not over. It's been passed on to us. See any opportunities in your life? Verse 50 says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple. The story starts out with reference to Jesus' hands. Jesus says, look at my hands, look at my side. And you know that the story of Thomas coincides with this, uh, where Thomas, Jesus actually said, put your hand in my side. Put your fingers through the holes in my hands. We are the hands and feet of God today. Jesus intentionally told the disciples that when he left, he was not going to leave the world without the presence of God in the form of Jesus' people. You might be familiar with the expression, Jesus' people. That came from a revival that took place in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, California, West Coast, mostly a West Coast event, and a little bit of Canada and so on. But the name was intentionally taken because uh, many of the young people who were part of that revival movement didn't want to be associated with the church or with Christianity, but just with Jesus, the Jesus people. That's why they took on that name. We are Jesus people. And I think there's a powerful message in that. We represent Jesus in the world today. 
the hands and feet part of Jesus. Now, you might not have holes in your hands like Jesus did, but there's some important symbolism to him holding out his hands and saying, look at my hands. And then he passes it on and says, I want you to be my hands and my feet. What you do in the world you live in is representative of me. It's not just what Jesus would do, WWJD, remember those initials, uh, but it's what Jesus did. He did this in this world for us. And now we get to pass it on to other people. In your bulletin is a quote on the worship page section there. If you can um, jam and maybe go back to the worship quote from the beginning of the service. There it is from N.T. Wright. Surprised by Hope is the name of the book it's in. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. We are not just in an in-between stage here. We have something to mean in this world, to pass on in this world, to represent in this world. The resurrection of Jesus is new life, not just so that we can have fire insurance from hell or something like that, but so that we can have purpose and meaning. Starts on the inside, yes, with that relationship with God that the gospel story is all about, but it moves outward from that to how we live, how we think about others, how we value others, our attitude toward our community, our country, our family, even, in the, even the people in our lives, and why Jesus said things like, if you love only those who love you, you're no different than anybody else, but love those. Do any, does anybody irritate you and bother you in the world today? I don't mean in Washington, D.C. or on a campaign trail. That's pretty easy to be bothered by all that. But I mean people in your real life. Well, why do you think Jesus put them in your life for? You're the hands and the feet of Jesus. That's why God gives us these circumstances and puts us in the world. That's what we're there for. But it's only going to happen if we genuinely believe and respond. I want to address the conspiracy aspect of this just because I don't want to leave this out, but I think that uh, this is another one of the arguments that we are engaged in from time to time if we communicate with people outside of the church context. This is also in your bulletin, but not on the overhead. How many of you remember Watergate? Yeah, a little bit of an age thing here. Uh, Watergate from the 70s when a president had to step down because he was caught doing things he was not supposed to do. Well, Chuck Colson was one of his right-hand men and actually went to prison. That never happens anymore. People go to prison for being crooked with the power in Washington. But it did happen 40 years ago. And this is, this is what Chuck Colson says in his book, Born Again. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. 
You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I think this story is more than just a story. I have never seen any credible evidence that this is just made up story. It's story in form, but it's story in fact as well. There are stories in form that are fiction, and there are stories in form that are fact. And everybody has a story to tell, and the story may be accurate to the accounts and verifiable, or maybe not so much. But there is no question that this happened. But if it happened, what does it matter to you? To me, what, what, what difference does it make? Jesus rose from the dead. That's God's powerful statement about who he was, what he came for, and what his plan for us is.